morning, church. Uh, good to be with you. Um, yeah, uh, you know, there's, I just wanted to say a few words before we started. Um, there's a lot of us that are, well, we're all reacting in one way or another to what happened in Atlanta this past week. Um, and there's a variety of reactions, and I want to acknowledge that first and foremost. Uh, it makes an already difficult year uh, even more difficult. You're trying to navigate tragedies through our screens. Uh, we're trying to do all that without worshiping together, uh, without having um, the kind of relational support and the feedback that we need to make a good journey as a church together. Um, I know for me, uh, it was just kind of a surreal feeling this week, followed by uh, realizations that so many people I grew up with um, in Miami uh, relocated to Atlanta over the past couple decades. Their whole families, um, parents, uh, people went for college, that kind of thing. And, uh, and you know, the, there's a church not far from where the shootings happened where uh, we would go to youth retreats with that church every summer. Um, and so there's, there's, there's some personal connections I have over there. And, and I can tell you, people just are in all kinds of places. Um, uh, what I want to uh, say, though, um, is that, you know, what we need to do is see things through um, uh, the, right, the right lens. And I, I wanted to simply focus that uh, this event has, has triggered all kinds of trauma and pain for people that they've experienced in their lifetime. Um, uh, the situation itself, there's a lot of complexities that, you know, I'm not going to go into here. Uh, but the trauma and the pain are real. Um, there are people dead today, and there is a community that is trying to grapple with uh, why these people were the targets of um, what happened. And, you know, to, just to illustrate, um, if I, I got into a car accident when I was in high school, and so it was raining. And I was driving the car, and then I got into a head-on collision with a van. Uh, my mom, if she's watching this morning, <laughs> she remembers this quite vividly. Uh, you know, and what happened after that was that every time I got into a car, if there was any rain involved at all, for years, I would get extremely nervous. My heart rate would rise, uh, and I would panic if the person driving didn't brake early enough. Uh, there was a lot going on in that moment that went beyond just the car I was in at the moment and, and the, the rain of the moment. And so I just want us to be able to think about it through that lens. Um, I'm gonna pray a brief prayer that I saw online. Uh, you know, I, I realize all of our timelines look different and all of our experiences and processes are different, but I'm gonna pray this prayer for us so that um, as we come to God's word, we can, we can come with the right heart. Let's pray together. Triune Lord, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, our God, who willingly chose to endure physical violence, marginalization by religious and political leaders, and victimization at the hands of those whose expression of faith falls short of your righteousness, mercy, and love. Keep watch with the families who mourn today. Stand alongside those who fear and give conviction and courage to those who should speak and act today. 
so that your justice and mercy are made manifest in our communities and your Holy Spirit's ministry is palpable to those in need. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and with the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. I want to give you permission if uh, today it's just hard for you to engage. I understand that. Um, if you're just stressed out, uh, I understand that. And it's all right if you're not able to do a lot this morning. Um, so I wanted to give you permission before we, we go forward. Our churches are in the middle of a series on King David, uh, the most important king of the Old Testament, arguably. Uh, and we come now to chapter seven. So if you have a Bible nearby, and I would urge you, you know, it's gonna be on the screen, but uh, you know, uh, Pastor Bland is always very keen on insisting you go get a physical Bible. And I will say, I am on the physical item train uh, that it does something for you to have physical objects in front of you. It makes you present in a way that maybe you might not otherwise. So grab a Bible, keep it open, and we're gonna unpack this passage as we go through as it's quite long. So I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but I'm gonna read parts of it and we're gonna get this sense of what's happening. So we're, we're in 2 Samuel chapter seven. Let's hear now this part of the word of God. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. So I wanted to start by having you try to remember a moment in your life where you were misunderstood in a way that resulted in a, a breaking of relationship of some kind. You see, to grow up, to some extent, growing up is Assume, it's kind of going from a place where we assume that we're on the same page as other people to realizing that we're all on very different pages. And what I want to argue is that this effect, that this breaking of relationship, because we do not understand and know each other's hearts, is a result and effect of sin entering the world. Even if you don't know Jesus today, even if you're watching this and you're not convinced of who he is, uh, you feel how broken this system is. You see, the Bible says humanity was once in unity with God and with, one, with, with itself, or people were in unity with one another. We perfectly understood and loved one another. There was no miscommunication or misunderstanding. But in the garden, Adam and Eve, through disobedience and the desire for God's gifts without God, destroyed these relationships. And that's why every single one of us has felt the emotions and has experienced these realities of being unknown, unloved, or misunderstood. Does anybody resonate with that this morning? You see, it's why everything messed up happens the way that it does. These are the effects of sin in our world. We want gifts, but not the givers. We were designed to be self-giving, but instead we worry about ourselves. And we're always paying the consequences for this. Even if you don't believe in Jesus, again, you feel this. And if you're not a Christian, what the Bible would say is that in addition to the broken relationships with other people, there is a, another relationship that is so messed up, so broken that you don't even perceive it's missing anymore. 
your relationship with God. They say the opposite of hate is not, uh, the opposite of love is not hate, it's in indifference. It's, it's, it's almost that the person is invisible to you. And so your relationship with God is the one that is most broken. Christian faith is not primarily a set of principles to live by or a set of static beliefs or rules. It's about a relationship between God and people that was ruined and how that relationship can be restored. And you see, God is doing that work of restoration, we believe, but that work's not complete. And you see, because God has not yet finished restoring these relationships, there come these moments of doubt or uncertainty of what exactly is happening. And the question ultimately arises when you're in relationships that are not yet what they were designed to be, what are the terms of my relationship? Are we meeting the terms correctly? Is everything all right with us? How do I know I'm doing enough? Now, some of you guys feel that kind of uncertainty more than others. I'm a relationally kind of oriented person, so I, I, I constantly have that kind of measuring, unfortunately. But David here is dealing with that kind of uncertainty. I don't know how negative he feels in it, but he's, there is some kind of uncertainty in which he's trying to figure out. See, he's in a successful place. He's in a palace and, and, and he's sitting in his palace and he looks over and he sees the tabernacle of God, the, the tent of the Ark of the Meeting. He sees the tent that God's presence rests in a special way that it has rested in since the time of Moses. And he begins to wonder if maybe something's a little off here. Maybe something's a little wrong. Uh, maybe, is this right? I'm sitting in a giant palace and God is sitting over there in a tent or the ark of God at least, and, 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 and a, his presence in a special way rests in that tent. Either way, he suggests to Nathan, the prophet, that he build God a house. So why does he think to build a temple? What, what's the urge behind this? Uh, maybe he's, there's, maybe there's lots of reasons. We don't actually know. It doesn't say, but maybe he's blinded by the immense success he has. Maybe he's actually feeling kind of arrogant or ambitious and he pre- presumes to think, you know, I, I, I need to do something for God. Maybe he's trying to appease God to get future success. Maybe there's some nervousness about the fact that things are going well, but what if they don't go well? Maybe I need to do something for God to give, keep the good times rolling. How many of you ever felt that when you're in a season where things are going well? Maybe he's worried about God coming and calling and asking for his due for the other shoe to drop. Maybe he feels that he owes God at the end of this whole successful run of his life uh, that he's been on so far. Or maybe it's just face value. Maybe he just saw where he's living and where he thinks God is living and it felt unfair in comparison. Either way, he feels the urge to do something and as we'll find out, this came from a profound misunderstanding of who God is and his relationship to God. You see, ultimately living in this broken world, it makes us forget what real relationships look like and it makes us forget what a real relationship with God looks like. Some of you this morning are, we are suffering from that on a very large scale. You've been looking at people through screens so long, you barely even remember what it's like to have a real relationship with somebody that you see and you talk and you, and you, and you, 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 you see the physical cues and you eat together and you do these things. There's the, a shadow of a relationship and you, you sometimes even forget what the real thing's like. That is what it is like with our relationship with God. And so what does Nathan do actually? Nathan says, 
Go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. Now, uh, just to clarify, essentially what he's saying is that sounds good to me in the best wisdom I've got. Uh, you know, Nathan was not someone who had a constant direct connection with God such that he also did not have to sometimes use his intuition and the wisdom God had given him. So to the best of his knowledge, he said, this sounds good. Well, it sounds honoring to God. Go ahead and do it. But then let's read verses four through seven because he goes home. And that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places, in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? You see, this is God's response to David. He's reminding David of who he is and what relating to him looks like, of how he identified with his people and went through them through all of their journeys. You see, other gods, think of mythology, any mythology you know from other religions, other gods sit in temples high above or condescend momentarily and go back to their majestic abodes. God chose instead to say, I will identify with you. His people were living in tents, wandering in the wilderness after escaping from Egypt, from slavery. And he said, I will also dwell in a tent with you. I will lead you. I will in your very midst be in the camp as I lead you through the wilderness. There was no God like him. And so he reminds David, it's my compassion is why I live here. And so God humbles David and God reminds him of what his relationship to his people really looks like. And so maybe this morning, as you deal with life and as you look out in the world, you have forgotten what kind of God he really is, of how close he is to you and of how he loves you. Maybe if you're, you've forgotten that he has been with you all of this time. And so God reminds David of this. And then what? He asked the question, would you build me a house? As if to say, do you forget who I am, David? If I wanted a house, I could have a house. Uh, perhaps David, you know, David, are you starting to believe that you need to pay me back? To which God responds as if he's Jeff Bezos and someone offered to pay for his Amazon Prime subscription. To which Jeff Bezos would probably say, uh, I am Amazon. I don't, I don't, Amazon Prime subscription. What are you talking about? So God's reminding David of who he is. And then what does he do? He reminds David of who David is. Verse eight. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. You see, God, he reminds David of who David is. And who is that? He's a recipient of God's undeserved free grace. His relationship to God was initiated by God before he was ever prosperous. He reminds David of his past. You ever, you ever had that happen? Somebody forgets who they are and where they came from and you got to remind them or maybe someone reminds you 
of who you used to be before some success came your way. David had forgotten, and God reminds him as if to say, our relationship, David, was never about what you did for me. I was with you when you were alone in the field with the wild animals as a shepherd. You were the youngest in your family when your dad didn't even think you were worthy to come to, to, the, to the selection uh, 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 you know, time when Samuel came to anoint a new king. Your dad didn't even think you were worth calling from the field. I'm the one who brought you success against Goliath when everyone else laughed at you and simply uh, were, were, were using you as a desperate last shot. I was with you when you were alone in the cave and your, your father-in-law wanted to kill you. I'm the one who brought you through when you had nothing to give me. How could you think that this is what I needed? You see, life, both good times and bad times, has the tendency to make us forget about who God really is. We begin to slip into the lie that this is some kind of relationship on equal footing, that he is like us, or that this is some kind of equitable transaction. I I don't know if you noticed, Nathan keeps talking because I'd like to think David doesn't have any words at this point. He starts to hear these words. I'm guessing that the noise in his heart starts to fall silent. He begins to change, as we'll see. Verse 9 through 17. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I, as God speaking, will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So it's not, you know, It's not, you're going to make me a house. I'm going to make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision. Nathan spoke to David. So God, true to who he is, reminds David of his everlasting love and faithfulness and then begins to talk about how he will do even more for David. So he's reminding David, I was doing all this for you before you had anything. And guess what? I am going to do even more for you beyond what you ever dreamed possible because that's who God is. He's holy. You see, holiness means set apart. And I think sometimes that conjures in your mind thoughts of, well, he's not stained, he's not dirty. And, 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 and really the emphasis I wanna say is that whole, the way he's holy is that he is totally different in the way that he knows how to love. That his love is totally what it ought to be. His love does not miss the mark. His love is where he gives and he gives and he gives because of his incredible, unending self gift. And so God begins to outline a promise that has two fulfillments here. Aren't you just amazed by that kind of love? Uh, 
that's, that stretches from, from the cradle to the grave. That's the kind of love God has for us. Let's see how he loves David here and, and how God makes these promises. The first promise is to be fulfilled in the near future. And the other is a promise that we are a part of today. First, this prophecy, these verses are about David's son, Solomon. He's essentially saying, I will give, and and the near future prosperity of Israel. He is essentially saying, I will give Israel, my people, your nation, political and military prosperity. There will be peace in the land. Someone from your lineage, David, will build the temple and I will have a relationship with him like a father has with a son. You see, remember, us calling God father, this was not kind of a real thing here yet in this time. That's a familiar concept to us, but it wasn't to David. So this was God saying, David, you're gonna have a son and I will treat him with the kind of honor that would come from being my actual son, the son of God. That was an incredible concept. And we see that with Solomon. Solomon did have prosperity like no king of Israel before or after him. He builds a temple that God anoints with his very presence in a real tangible way that's amazing. Uh, If you've never read that, I would urge you go and read about Solomon dedicating the temple. It's an incredible scene. Uh, This would have doubtless have been an incredible promise to David. Can you imagine? You know, you're starting to think, where are God and I? Should I be doing this for him? And instead God says, don't forget. My love to you had no condition. This is not a transaction. I've placed my love upon you and here's how much more I'm gonna love you and your family and your people that you rule. To know that your life's work will continue on, that is not for nothing. And to know that God has a special intimate promise with your family and with your children, that's an incredible promise. How great the love of God for David. But we know that this promise is not just for David. And it's not just for David's benefit. this, This promise to David is also a part of his plan for the whole world and the entire created universe. This promise is for us. You see, this is the incredible thing about God. He blesses you and loves you and he accomplishes his perfect will. He somehow does the big things while never neglecting the small things. He shows you love individually and he brings restoration to others and the world around you. He's doing both at the same time. This is how God works. Never think that you're too small for God's concern. Never think that God's plans are not big. He does both. So too, Nathan's prophecy is about another son of David, another son that would totally establish a different kingdom, a, a, a totally different kingdom that would never end. He would build a totally different kind of temple, not made by human hands. And this king would not just be treated as a son, but actually be God's son. You see, David didn't fully understand the fulfillment of that part of the promise. But see, on this side of the cross, God himself in Jesus has revealed how this promise was fulfilled. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, we are the temple of the living God. 
Hebrews 1.5 quotes this promise by saying, to which of the angels did God ever say, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son? And, and obviously the answer to that question is to none of the angels because he said it to Jesus. You see, Jesus came. He announced the beginning of a new world. He said that he was the king. And he announced the beginning of a new world, one that included people, not just from Israel, but from every tribe and tongue and nation. Uh, a, a kingdom in which the age-old brokenness of the world would be undone. Not just temporary prosperity, not just prosperity for the country, not just a time of peace in the here and now, but an entire transformation of the created order, of everything, where people would no longer dehumanize and objectify one another where there would be no more tears or violence, where people would actually perceive and relate to God in the way that they were designed, where every broken institution, system, and messed up part of the entire universe would be restored to a new reality. He would make all things new, is what he said when he came, that this was what he inaugurated and started. What an incredible promise. You see, God takes David out of his moment and he takes him into seeing the whole story. He tells David the good news. You see, this is the good news of the gospel we see in this promise. It's the good news of the terms of our relationship with God. It's the good news of the trajectory our relationships have with each other. This is how we know how things are going. This is we know how we know where things are going. You see, and so David goes from wondering whether he needs to do something for God to hearing promises that are utterly overwhelming. And let's see his response to that. Verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. So he hears it and he, and he sits down. And he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? You see the change in attitude? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant, concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house." Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord, you are God and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord, have spoken and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. <sighs> Can you see that change in attitude? 
Can you see how we went from saying, maybe I should build you a house, God, to saying, I, I accept, build me a house, God. He goes from a place of offering to acceptance. He comes from thinking about his relationship with God transactionally to realizing that if this was about transactions, he would never be able to pay God back. Thank God our God is not looking for that kind of transaction. Hallelujah. He remembers all of God's faithfulness, past, present, and future. And that is the center of the good news. You see, God has always been a promise keeper. This promise to David is the same promise he offers to us today. And it was sealed by his own blood. Blood spilled because we see the injustice of people killed, made in the image of God, and who ought to pay? We ought to pay. But God in Jesus paid that penalty on our behalf. You see, how do we know that we've done enough for God? It's already been done. How do we know that God has, has received the part of the transaction? Because God fulfilled that part. Relationship with God is not offered to you because of what you've done. It's been purchased for you through the death of Jesus on your behalf. He offers it as a free gift. He died and placed his love on you before the world began. And what's more, he gives you his own spirit and puts you in a community that is defined increasingly by his self-giving love. God's promises to you in Jesus are much bigger than anything you could offer him in this life. I'll say that again. God's promises to you in Jesus are much bigger than anything you could offer him in this life. So what do we do? What's next? What do we do with that information? What do we do understanding that God's made these promises to us to make us part of this kingdom that will endure forever and ever? If you're not a believer this morning, if you have yet to fully place your trust in Jesus, it's simple. Allow Jesus to be the promised king of your life. He promises, his promises to you are eternal and forever. He promises healing and restoration for your life. Forgiveness for your part in the brokenness of the world. He promises to love you and to never leave you until he comes in power and glory at the end of time. Place your trust in Jesus because God's promises to you in Jesus are much bigger than anything you could offer him in this life or hope for in this life. If you're a believer this morning, perhaps you've been driven by a sense of obligation to God, especially during this pandemic, especially during this last season. Perhaps you're glancing around at what you've been offering to God or what people are telling you you should be giving to God and you feel guilt and shame. Remember the good news. You're not a tenant trying to pay rent. You're a child in a home with a loving father, an eternal friend in Jesus, and the counselor that will always guide you. God's promises to you in Jesus are much bigger than anything you could offer him in this life. Maybe it's the promise to build a church that will never become, never be overcome. This promise of God to build a church that will never be overcome, that's hard today for you. This has been a year of people becoming more and more aware of how broken our society is. And what's been devastating in all of it is what has happened to God's church, especially in our country. I've seen so many relationships torn apart and strained by the events of the past year. I know pastors, 
Uh, and Pastor Bland has, uh, told me as well, you know, there's so many pastors that want to quit because of how broken the church has been the past year. We expect the world to be broken. But when we see the church display that same brokenness, sometimes without any discernible difference between us and the world, we wonder whether God's promises hold true for his church. We're tempted to give up on pursuing God's promise that he will make us a church defined by his spirit and his love. And instead, we start to retreat into functional, transactional relationships like the world does. Relationships that are part, honestly, of a world that is fading away. Maybe you're burned out at trying to make it all work in these relationships in your life, especially in the body of Christ. Maybe you're tired of endless social media debates and news cycles and church controversies and dealing with a pandemic that seems to just exacerbate all of it and make it worse. Maybe you're tired of figuring out what do I do and how do I know I've done enough? (sighs) Perhaps you see what goes on in the church and begin to wonder if God's even involved. Maybe you're in our church and you're tired of loving people who keep moving away. Uh, You wonder if all this effort is actually building to anything. And we may be in the opposite of David's moment of situational prosperity. But you see, we're still aided by the same remedy that David needed, which is God's good news. You see, friends, God has promised to build his church. His love is upon us. Our trajectory is sure. We don't need to look at our efforts and how well we think we're doing and despair. We have seen the end. You see, David saw the end and suddenly he realized that the present moment was not quite as important as he might have thought. He saw the end and we have seen the end in his resurrected body that was made new. We have seen the glimpses of the end when we march forward in prayer and fasting, sacrificial love and bold faith, and we see God bring people to himself even in the midst of a pandemic when we cannot meet. We have seen the end and we can look at his return with hope. We can know our trajectory with hope. Fear not, he's close. He's with us to the very end of the age. He's promised, let's celebrate his faithfulness by responding not with obligations that we owe, but expressions of the same love that he first showed to us. God's promises promises to us in Jesus are much bigger than anything we could offer him in this life. Let's pray together. God, often we are guilty of being tossed to and fro by the waves of the moment. We often forget where we came from and where we are going. We forget there are people who came before us and we forget that there will be people who come after us. We forget our smallness before you. And we also forget that even though we are small, you care so intimately and deeply for us. We forget that you have time for us, but that we are also in a moment of time. God, we pray that you would give us perspective to see the incredible promise we have in you, to see the assurance and the evidence for what we know is true. And would we embrace the things that you've promised? You've promised that your church will never be overcome. You have promised us your eternal love because of your sacrifice in Jesus. You've promised us forgiveness. You've promised us a relationship of being not uh, people who owe a debtor, but instead a relationship as 
children of God. God, we're grateful for that. We know that this morning, in this season, where many of us are uh, uh, struggling under difficulties of all kinds, that we can come to you and know that you're with us. And we look forward at our trajectory and know that it's sure. God, we thank you so much. We celebrate in your faithfulness to us, in your promises to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus.